triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've come this morning to praise you, to praise the living God who is satisfied in and of himself. From all eternity, Father, you loved the Son and were well pleased with him, and Son, you Love the Father, Spirit. You loved them both and they loved you and you were completely satisfied. God, loving God, enjoying God for all eternity. And Lord, in your gracious love and, and enjoyment of yourself, you overflowed and created and brought us forth. And yet this morning offered with that endless, boundless love that even spilled out of the Trinity into creation, we confess that our hearts, Lord, are mixed at best. So many things this morning we have come with that are baggage weighing down our hearts, that are drawing us away from you. This morning, Father, would you please... Again, renew your love for us and cause our eyes to look outside of ourselves, to look up to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and be satisfied with what he has done and who he is and in this alone. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, When I got married a decade ago, over a decade now, man, time goes fast. Uh, Dion and I had a, a little bit of a problem uh, that we had to we had to fix fairly quickly. Uh, if you don't know my wife, my wife uh, is not a naturally born American, and so uh, her family had fled from Russia as refugees uh, facing persecution for their faith, and so they had come here. Uh, they were green carded. They were living here when I met her, and then we got married. Uh, But that left her citizenship in question, which was no source of comfort for me. Uh, I would uh, have dreaded having someone coming in the middle of the night and snatching my wife away. And so we quickly ran to have her naturalized into the United States. And uh, I wanted her to know the the safety and the benefit of, of being a full citizen, of belonging to this nation. And so we had to change her citizenship. The text this morning that we're dealing with uh, deals with that exact same topic. You see, humanity was living in a perpetually dangerous, threatening nation, a kingdom that is full of evil and darkness that uh, would assume their life and take away their joy. But we, as God's church, have a good husband not patting myself on the back, but we have, a, we have a good husband who seeks to bring out his bride into a far better country. And I hope this morning as we look at Philippians that we will see that Christ-loving kingship results in life and privilege far better than what we left behind, and that should stir our hearts then to more faithful living. I'll deal with the text this morning in three points, and these are... The main themes, I think, of this verse. The first is worthy gospel citizenship. That's verse 27. Worthy gospel citizenship. If you notice the text, I switched the order of worthy and gospel. That'll come in a minute. Worthy gospel citizenship. The second is kingdom division. That's verse 28. Kingdom division. So we have 
worthy gospel citizenship, kingdom division, and finally, verse 29 and 30, kingdom gifts. Kingdom gifts. So let's start with worthy gospel citizenship. I don't know if any of you have had the blessed displeasure of living in a home that's near a freeway or a train station or maybe an airport. Um, I have not personally, but uh, I used to have a client that worked, uh, that I used to work with regularly that we had a two weekly conference calls at 2.30 in the afternoon. And uh, on the dot at 2.45, there was the sound of a train in the background. Uh, and at first, the first couple of times I heard it, I was shocked and surprised and we made some jokes about it. But as time went on, it just became an expected part of what we were doing and it kind of faded into the background. It became white noise, uh, something that wasn't paid attention to. And I'm concerned that when we come to a text like what we have this morning, what the Lord has as most central fades into the background for us and instead we pay attention to something less central, less important perhaps, but for sure will destroy the whole point of the text if we're not careful. So I want you to open your scriptures and look at verse 27 here. Put your finger there, and I'm going to read it slowly. And as I'm doing that, I want you to take note of the part of the verse that stands out to you the most. What is it that captures your attention? Let's read. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you're anything like me, most people I know, and I ask this question, when you read this verse, what stands out to you is something like, let your manner of life be worthy. Or perhaps standing firm, striving side by side. See, we have this natural tendency to gravitate to the things that we're told to do. We want to put our hands on something. We want to get messy. We want to fix something or move forward. We, we have this innate sense in us that well, it must be doers, and so we focus on that. The problem with that, brothers and sisters, is what we read in Isaiah 58 this morning. How did that text start? It didn't start with, uh, Oh, Israel, you have forsaken me, and you're not doing anything that I asked you. No, the people of Israel are saying, We're doing. That's what we're doing. We honor your Lord's day. We gather together. We fast. And what was God's response to them? You've missed the point. You don't understand. It's not just that you do these things. There's something behind that 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 you need to get. It's exactly what happens when we come to this text and the first thing that comes to our mind is do. Instead, we miss an important phrase that's in verse 27 twice. It's this, the gospel. The gospel. I don't know if it shocks you at all, but in a text that clearly is indicating that we are to live an appropriate life, a moral life, a right life, there stands the gospel. Why would that be? 
Why don't we just need the law? Don't we need just to be told what to do and then go forth and do it? And even more odd, more strange, if you, if you don't read this carefully, it's not just that it's called the gospel, it's called the gospel of Christ. In the ESV, the word gospel is used 97 times. And almost always, it stands by itself. Jesus says he preaches the gospel. Paul encourages people to believe the gospel. But very rarely is there anything added to that. And so in this text, when Paul himself says gospel of Christ, he has a point that he wants to make to us. When I read a text like this and I come across something interesting like that, I want to be very careful to make sure that I understand what's going on. Uh, the scripture is not written without a purpose, and the Holy Spirit did not mean to put in of Christ for no reason. So I try to go back and read these things very slowly. If you look in verse 27, uh, your ESV probably has a footnote next to the word let. If it's not a footnote, it should be a cross-reference. The cross-reference is to Philippians 3.20. And there's a reason for that. The phrase here, let your manner of life be, that whole phrase, let your manner of life be, is one word in the Greek. And I really hate bringing up the Greek. It's not uh, that it's um, more important than the English we have in front of us, but it makes a point the word there is polytlumamai. It comes from the word polis. Uh, it's where we get our word for politics for. The word for city. A metropolis is a large city. And so if you look at Philippians 3.20, this is what it says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for citizenship there comes from the same word for polis. They're linked together, and that is the reason for the cross-reference. You see, Paul is suggesting something here that he's going to weave in through the rest of the book of Philippians. It's this, that we are citizens of a kingdom. Uh, if you remember the last sermon I gave, which was so long ago, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, uh, from, from 15 to the point where we start our chapter, our text for today, you remember that Paul was in chains. And where was he? He was in Rome. And Rome has a king. His name is Caesar. And he's an awful and wicked despot. He hates what's true. He hates what's good. And so he's thrown Paul in prison. And Paul is preaching Christ from there. You see, uh, Paul has a backdrop that he's putting our text in Today, there is a kingdom out there, but you and I belong to a better kingdom. A kingdom that belongs to Christ. And it's his message that we preach. And so if there's a king, there's a, if there's a kingdom, there's a king. And sure enough, as I said, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his gospel. Now, why choose Christ, though, as the word to modify gospel. Why not Jesus? Why not Son of God? Uh, why not the Son? Well, because Christ is a title. Christ has meaning. It's not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah. He is the anointed one. 
And if you look carefully in the Old Testament, you'll find, uh, as our confession teaches, that this Messiah would have three roles or three offices. The first was prophet, that he would come forth and speak the word of God, that he would teach his people all that God had for them. The second was priest, that he would come and offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that he would pay the debt once and for all, that he would stand between us and God. But finally, he would be king. He would rule over a nation. And as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark, for example, you see over and over again that people are expecting a king. And they're looking for Jesus. They think Jesus is the Messiah. And they think he's going to come and take over and, and displace Rome. But that's not the kind of king that we have. Here's what our catechism says in question 29. How does Christ execute the office of king? Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. You see, we have a king unlike the kings of the world who has come with a message unlike the rest of the world, and he has adopted us into that kingdom. When you're careful and you read the text slowly then, the weight all of the weight is not on let your manner of life, but it's on your citizenship, on the kingdom, and in the one who stands as the head of this kingdom. It wants us to look not inside of ourselves. It doesn't want us to look at our hands and what we're performing, but instead to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is, what He has done. To think about him as good, as we heard several Sundays ago. How he is good, how he is love, how he is light, how he is compassion and full of mercy. Long-suffering. He's a king like any other king, unlike any other king. And he's a king who rules over us. You see, uh, to kind of give away a little bit of what's to come in the sermon... When we focus on what we are supposed to do, we will be hypocrites. We will be Pharisees. We will strive to fulfill God's law apart from the blessed means that God has given it that it would be fulfilled, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to rightly do what God requires of us, to live as citizens of God's kingdom, you can't do it. You can't do it if you first don't know who has done it and know him well. What then does it mean to, uh, to live in a manner worthy of this gospel, of this king who rules over us? Well, if you think about it, your inclination is probably first to think that you need to go and, and fulfill all of God's commandments. Right? When we think of ourselves as citizens of the United States, we think of a long list of laws that we have to obey and how carefully we have to obey them, lest we find ourselves on the wrong side of the law. Even driving here, perhaps this morning, you were running late and put your 
foot to the pedal and uh, were breaking the law and praying that the Lord wouldn't allow a police officer to pull you over. Uh, Our natural inclination, even when we think of our citizenship, is to think of rules. But seldom do we actually think about when we come to a kingdom, there are laws, sure enough, there are responsibilities, but there are rights that are more foundational even than the laws. And when I mean rights, uh, I have to be very clear. I don't mean R-I-G-H-T-S. That's what we normally think of when we think of rights, what I deserve, what I should get. But I mean R-I-T-E-S, rights, rituals, things that govern the entrance into a kingdom or into a country. I mentioned my wife had to be naturalized. One of the things that they do when you come in to be in this country is you have to study and understand the history, the culture that you'd be adopting. You take an oath, you swear that you will uphold the Constitution and that you will, you will be a good member of society. There's these rights that govern who is in and who is out. Those things should be the first and foremost thing you think of when you think of whether or not your life is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. What do I particularly mean for us as believers? Well, how about this? Does anybody know what governs who is in and outside the kingdom? Our confession and our catechisms point to something called the keys of the kingdom that open the door wide or slam it shut as to who is in and who is out. And those keys of the kingdom are first preaching. Preaching. Do you know to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel and the king who is the king of that gospel is that you would attend yourself well to preaching? That's not something we normally think of when we think of what we have to do. You think maybe I should open a food kitchen or maybe I should, maybe I should go serve the poor and the needy. Maybe I, maybe I need to, to, to be a counselor or, or someone who's out there championing for the unborn. And yet, one of the first things that we are to do in order to rightly live in a manner worthy of the gospel is attend ourselves to gospel preaching. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom if you aren't listening and allowing the keys to open the door that you may walk in. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, how does that work? How do the keys of the kingdom do that? The preaching of the word of God, according to our own catechism, does this. Question 89. How is the gospel of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the commandment of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when, listen, it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merit, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The door is open wide to you and I for the first time when we hear the gospel and we repent and believe. We come in. That is necessary if you're going to be a citizen who lives in a manner worthy. You have to be in. And so hearing the preaching does that. It it invites you. It opens the doors. And when the Holy Spirit enters your heart and gives you life, you become a citizen. But it doesn't stop there. Notice what it said. It said that it testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sakes of Christ's merit. 
Brothers and sisters, we have to attend ourselves to the preaching of the word because it assures us of what God has done for us. It warms our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. It helps us to see who he is and what he's done. Things that are necessary if you were to be a good citizen. But it also closes the the doors of heaven. Let me warn you. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it's proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. When the word is preached and you don't attend to it, your hearts are hardened. Your hearts are hardened. You are pushed further away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, if you continue in that hardness, you will be shown to be outside the kingdom and not a citizen at all, unable to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We must attend ourselves to preaching first and foremost. It's central to the Christian life. Even before, go and do. Put your hands to something. What are the other rights that we have? Church discipline. Church discipline is a right that we exercise that is part of our citizenship. When we warn and admonish one another, when we put each other forward before the Lord and warn that if you continue in your way, you will show yourself to be outside the kingdom, that itself is a blessed right. Because it assures us that as we come together, and we're, we see one another. When you're not being disciplined, we're affirming the faith that you have. We're affirming that you belong to the Lord Jesus, that you are a citizen. And when you stumble and fall, not as a means of slapping you on the hand and, and telling you, no, you're doing wrong, but as a means of encouraging you to enjoy your citizenship again, we may discipline you, that you would be restored and move forward. This is a right that governs those who are in and out of the kingdom. Baptism. Have you ever thought of baptism as one of those things that, that, that belongs to right living? That belongs to, to admonishing the gospel and, and putting it forward and, and, really, and really making a central part of your life? It is. Baptism is something that we're to do in order to enjoin ourselves, to, to have a manner of life worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why might that be? Because baptism is the sign that you belong to the kingdom. It's the sign that Christ has washed you, that he has taken you to himself, that your sins are no more, that what had separated you from God's grace has been removed, and that you belong to him. The table, the Lord's table, which we will celebrate this morning, is a rite of the kingdom. Do you know that you cannot come to this table unless you are truly a believer? That those who come by faith, who belong to the kingdom, who partake of the table, their faith is assured, they're they're grown. The Lord Jesus himself will feed your soul and assure you that you belong to him, that you belong to this covenant community. But do you know what happens if you come as an unbeliever, as someone who comes not in faith? God makes sure to prove to you that you are outside. In Paul's day, and I believe this still happens today, the Lord said those who come in an unworthy manner even die. The table is a right 
that we enjoy, a privilege we enjoy as citizens that govern who is in and who is out. The prayers of the saints are a right that we go through, a, 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 uh, a means of grace that we enjoy that governs who is in and out of the kingdom. Do you know that uh, we, we often make much of the Sunday evening service, and some people ask why. why what's the point of coming uh, again to uh, gather together as a church in the evening and to pray? And the answer to that is, it's a privilege that comes with the kingdom. We don't get back here together again to, to do something for God. We don't all gather together on Sunday evening that we might uh, have another activity to put on our calendar. Uh, you and I have full calendars. I, I don't need another thing on my calendar to do. We, we come together because praying together is a privilege and a right that we have as citizens to point each other to the Lord Jesus Christ to say, to say, I once belonged to the world and my flesh still wants those things, but instead I can come and I can belong to Christ and I can pray for you and you can pray for me and we can encourage each other. That can't be done for those who are outside of the kingdom. And what do all these things have in common? They point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching is preaching only when it makes much of Christ. Discipline is only rightly administered when it's meant to rejoin us or to reconcile us again to Christ. Baptism is about what Christ has done. The Lord's table is about what he is doing. The prayers of the saints are entrusting ourselves to Christ. All of this is about living out our faith together in him. It's about being united to him. We read Psalm 91 this morning. I'd ask you to go home and read that uh, again to yourself and ask yourself, who is that psalm about? Phil, in his prayer this morning, made it clear. It's about Christ. That is who that psalm is about. But why then is it there to remind us that when we are joined to Christ, all of Christ's benefits are ours. All of them. Christ earned a righteousness for himself that he gives to us. Christ had the full favor of God. It now belongs to us. The love that the Father had for him now belongs to us. That is so important because it encourages our hearts to be satisfied in him. To see Jesus as all that we need. You're going to see in a moment that that then changes what we would normally think of a, a, a life worthy of the gospel is like. You and I are quick to run to the law of God. Right? Like I said, when you read that, if you were like me, you probably the first thing you thought was, is, well, I, I need to do things like not murder and not steal and not lie. and that, That's what it will look like to live a life man, worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ. That is true. That is very true. But it can't be done. It can't be done by pulling our bootstraps up and trying in our own effort to do it. 
But why would the law of God, I don't know if you've ever asked this question yourself, why would the law of God uh, also be a way of living a life or living out our citizenship in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Is the law just some random arbitrary rules that God decided would be good for us? Or is there something behind the law? Shane mentioned it last week. Uh, In the evening services, I try to bring it up often and and, and pray to this extent. Do you realize that the, the, the law written on the tablets that Israel had is actually a reflection of the character of God? That's the reason why, brothers and sisters, when we were unbelievers, we hated it so much. Because we hate God naturally. Why wouldn't we hate the law? But it is a summary of who God is. Think think about this. Who in all the universe is the only being not to covet? God. Why? Because he's fully satisfied in himself. Why would we be commanded not to lie? Because everything God does is true. Why not to steal? Because God is generous and gives freely. Why not to adulterate? Because God is faithful. Any one of the Ten Commandments reflects all the fullness of character of God. So then, living a life worthy of the gospel is not to check off a bunch of things that we need to do, simply to have them done, but it's because it reflects the character of God. That goes back then to what I've been saying. We have a problem. Two things in hand. Do on one hand and a king on the other. How do we reconcile them? Well, the first is to see that as Christ is king, we are to be satisfied in him and him alone. In literature, uh, I don't know if you read much uh, old literature, but um, this happens quite a bit. It happens in movies all the time. Uh, you'll have a, a fairy tale, and there'll be two kingdoms. And, and, and you, know, you know you're looking at the good king's kingdom because uh, the sun is out, and the, the, the flowers are, are blooming, and everyone has a smile on their face, and everyone seems to be full of joy. It, it, it might even be a poor nation. People might be uh, just barely making it by, but they're happy. And then it'll, it'll flip the script, and you'll see, you'll see the evil villain of the movie, right? And you'll be sitting on a, a crooked throne that's a, you know, dilapidated, and everything's dark, and, and he's brooding there on his throne, and, and his servant comes in, he's a hunchback, and he's, and he's you know, always afraid of what his master wants. You see, literature, the world actually gets a good sense of what it's like to actually live in a kingdom. The people are tied to their king. What their king is like is what they become like. They take on the character of the king. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, um, As we stare in the face of our king, 
as we, as we long look in his, his loving eyes, his compassionate, tender, merciful heart, we get transformed into his likeness. We, something happens to us. Something spiritual, something maybe you and I can't exactly explain, but our hearts more and more long to be like him. And what was he like? Full of righteousness. Full of truth and good fruit. He did everything well. He always obeyed the Father's will. You see, when we come to the text and we run right to let your manner of life be worthy, we miss out on the very one who changes us that we may live that way. If you come to this text and what you're burdened with is stand firm in one spirit, strive side by side, fight for the faith, let your manner of life be worthy, what you're going to do is take two steps out the door and fall on your face and never be able to get back up. Because the law crushes and kills man in his natural state. You and I cannot obey. We don't want to. We naturally hate God. We hate the things of God. We hate the law. It's a burden, a shackle, a chain. But if we come to the text, and the thing that stands out first to us is gospel of Christ, brothers and sisters, the law is no longer a burden because it's an avenue of us getting close to the God that we desire the Lord and Savior who purchased us, the one who loved us when we didn't love him, the one who came down and was merciful to those who are not merciful, to those who are not lovely, those who are not beautiful, to those who had nothing in themselves to commend themselves to God. You live in a manner worthy of the gospel when you come and you stare long in his face and you're changed into his likeness. Then, then it all makes sense. Then the preaching of the word of God makes sense. Then the baptism in the Lord's table makes sense. Then the law makes sense. And it is no longer a hindrance, but a joy. But I I need to warn you, because there's a, a trap a pitfall that I fall into often. That I think by simply having good thoughts about Jesus, theologically right thoughts about Jesus, that this changing will happen in my heart. It's foolishness. It's actually a lie from the devil to keep us distracted. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said this, What comfort can it be to a man when he comes to die to think he remembered many excellent notions about Christ? He had many excellent thoughts about who he was, but never had the grace so to meditate on them as to be transformed into them. Now listen. A sermon remembered but not ruminated will only serve to increase our condemnation. 
You and I need to meditate on who that is that has purchased us. We need to meditate on our king and what he is like. Not just to have lovely thoughts of him. Not just to think of, oh, there is this blessed one named Jesus who lived and died for me. But to get deep at a well and to drink. When was the last time you stopped and thought long and hard about who he really is and what he's done for you? How often have you gone daily to the well of life, the fountain of life, and drunk deeply in meditation before approaching the trials of the day? I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered, for example, the reason why forgiveness doesn't come to you? Or why anger wells up in your heart so easily? Why you are bitter and complain? Why you're never satisfied? Perhaps it's this. Perhaps it's you have not hooked your hose to the endless reservoir of Christ and received from Him over and over again who He is and what He's done. Brothers and sisters, if there is a work that you have to do to be worthy of the kingdom of the gospel, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's this. Lay down all of the things you're holding on to and look to Him. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about the hardness of your life. Stop thinking about your circumstances and think about Him. And this isn't going to happen in the moment of trial and tribulation. It's not going to happen in the moment of temptation. This has to be the thing that your mind runs to all the time. When you wake up and your feet first hit the cold floor and you're shocked out of your slumber, what is it that your heart should run to? The coldness of the tomb that the Lord Jesus Christ laid in for three days before he was raised up. When you're hungry and you're, and you're desiring food, what should your mind run to? How about the bread of life that satisfies all of our desires? You see, when your mind is changed so that the one that you are concentrated on, the one that you are drawing from, the one you're feasting and, and, and just engorging yourself on is on the Lord Jesus Christ, then guess what naturally happens? When you're reviled, you won't revile in return. When you're persecuted, you won't strike back. When you're hated, you'll love. This is radically different than pulling up our bootstraps. Too often, our hearts deceive us, and we think that what we need to do is get up in the morning and do the things that the Lord deserves. He's purchased me, so now I must be obedient. That's what it is. Payment for payment. Foolishness! Who is God that you would repay him? Sometimes we think that, oh, this is what a good little Christian would do. Foolishness. Morality doesn't save. God wants better. He wants our hearts. A life worthy of the gospel is rooted in Christ and is overflowing with joy and satisfaction in the king of the kingdom that you belong to. And this is exactly what Paul is intending here at the end of 27 when he says that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the evidence that is meant to show them 
that they are doing that exact thing. Brothers and sisters, think about our body here. We will never be unified around anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just bare acknowledgement of Christ. Let me put it this way. If we came here because we're all Florida Gator fans, there would be some of us who would immediately be put outside the kingdom, wouldn't there? Tyler Baxter is trying to leave now. Right? There would automatically be tension and division built in. So if we come here for any reason other than Christ, there is already a division. But what happens if we come and we are united around Christ, but it's not because we're satisfied in him? There is an equal danger, which is this. The moment you and I disagree on a jot or a tittle in the scriptures, we're going to be divided. The line will move closer and closer to what I think is right instead of what the scriptures are preaching. And so I'll have a Christ in my own making, and you'll have a Christ in your own making. And you know what that means? There's Christ is divided. No, brothers and sisters. When Paul says that they would be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, he has this in mind. They are so satisfied in Christ, there can be no division among them. That when you and I sin against each other, when we rub up against each other, we can forgive because bigger than the offense that you would have against me or I against you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Bigger than my personal preference for how you dress or what you like or what you do is the Lord Jesus Christ. What then about this fighting, this striving, which is just another word for combat, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we will not be a people who live and die for the gospel until we come to see that Christ is worth more than living and dying. That's what Paul just said in the section before. Whether I live or die, it makes no difference. Why? Because he has Christ Jesus as his all-satisfying Savior. You will not preach to the lost unless more important to you is who Christ is and what he's done, other than being thought much of. You won't try to convince your heart every morning that you need to believe the gospel, unless the Lord Jesus Christ is more important to you than all the trinkets of the world. We will be a people who are unified, a people who fight to believe and to spread and to uphold and defend the gospel when Jesus is our all-satisfying King. Point two, a kingdom divided. If you look at verse 28, and I will do my best to try to move more quickly now, but verse 28, notice here that they are not frightened. They're not frightened. This goes alongside with standing firm and striving for the faith. One of the outpours of having this king satisfy our hearts is that we're not frightened in anything. How can that be? As you are satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know him more and more. You will know his heart. You will know how he rules his people. And how is that? In gentleness and mercy and love. That means when the outsiders, those who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, come against us and they hate us and they revile us and they even put us to death. As I was reading the other day, when they come and they drown our children, they crucify our wives and our husbands, 
How will it be that you're not frightened? It's because of Christ as your all-satisfying Savior. You know that all that is coming to you is for your good. It's because he's a gentle king, a lovely king, a king who loves you. As we read in the, as I, as I read from the catechism, he's one who doesn't just woo us, but he protects us and he governs us in love. He wouldn't let those things come to us unless it was from the loving hand of a king who cares for us. And so we can stand firm, confident, not frightened. Because the end will not be death, but Christ Jesus. Why else might we not be frightened? Because of this. Because if we're looking to a kingdom that he rules over that has no end, death is nothing. We can endure the loss of all of our property and our things and even our lives because all of that, at best, was furthering our worship of Christ. At worst, was hindering it. And when it all passes away, we will be with him forever. The aim of our heart, the joy of our life. How then is it their destruction? How about this? Remember that all those who don't have Christ are against Christ. They hate God. They hate his law. They hate his people. So they stand outside of Christ And you know what they don't have? They don't have one spirit. They aren't striving for the truth of the gospel. They're frightened always and at all times. They don't know the same peace, the same endurance, the same joy because they don't have our king. They have a different ruler. The prince of the power of the air who rules over him. And that prince is a selfish prince. He's a hard taskmaster. The devil is evil and he has no good for the people who live in his land. When they come against the church, they show themselves to be outside of Christ. How then is it for our salvation? The opposite as it is for their destruction. Because only those who know Christ as their all-satisfying desire can endure. And to do so with joy Brothers and sisters, look at your life for a moment. How little is your obedience? How little is your endurance? If it's as small as mine, what that should declare to you is how little you know and love your Savior. How little do you rejoice in Him? Brothers and sisters, we should be aware that there's a day coming either because of the world or Christ's return, when we will be judged. The evidence of our satisfaction in Christ is the life that we live. How is this then from God? If you see there in the text, 28, and that, both the destruction and the salvation, are from God. Well, it's this. As Christ is our king, he defends us, and he restrains and destroys our enemies. He's not a king who is helpless. He will one day inaugurate his kingdom finally, and when he does, he will destroy all evil. He will wipe it away, and he will bring his children into his kingdom. And so there's this cosmic division 
this rend between all the peoples of all creation. And we tend to think of that as who believes and who does not believe. Might, might I suggest we change that slightly? In the book of John, there's many people who believe but don't remain. It's not just that you believe. It's that you believe in Christ and are satisfied in him alone. The difference between whether or not you will stand with the goat or the sheep, the difference between whether or not you'll enter the kingdom of God or forever perish in eternity in hell is not just that you know Jesus, but that you savor him, that you want him, that you crave him, that he is what your life is about. True faith, saving faith, is a faith that's alive and wants nothing more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn then to the last point, kingdom gifts. Here in verse 29, we see that there are many gifts. The first is that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. Faith itself is a gift. I don't know if you know uh, many people who... um, or outside the Reformed faith, but uh, this is where I struggle the most, trying to uh, interact with our brothers and sisters who don't believe the same things we do, is uh, salvation, what we've inherited, is not because of anything we've done. Another reason why let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel can't be what primarily what we do with our hands, but instead the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is because you weren't brought into the kingdom that way. God looked down in mercy on you and poured out life and love on you when you didn't deserve it. So the first kingdom gift, the the gift that we have of being in the kingdom is salvation. But the second one, oh, the second one. The second one is suffering. Have you ever thought of suffering as a gift? Oh, how scandalous that might sound to you. Oh, why would a good God want his people to suffer? That's awful. That's terrible. It can't be our Lord. If that's what your heart is saying to you right now, may I ask you to turn to the king of our country, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did the Father give the Son? But suffering. The psalm that we read this morning talks about all the pestilence that won't touch him and the eternal life he has. Yes, that's true. But it only happens on the other side of the cross. When he was incarnate, he suffered perfectly without any sin. He dealt with sinners like you and I all the time. He suffered his whole life and died in suffering. If we have a good God, a good Father, then it is no scandal that he would give the good gift of suffering to his Son and give it to us as well. But how is it good? How is suffering good? It's not in the people who bring about the suffering. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter tells about the suffering of Christ, he's very clear. It was wicked men who put him on the cross. There's evil there. But do you remember the evil that happened to Joseph? His brothers throwing him into a pit? What does he end with? What you meant for evil, God intended for good. The gift of suffering is not the evil circumstance, but what they are intended to do. What are the effects? The first is a purging effect. 
Did you know suffering puts to death inside of us all those things that keep us from Christ? 1 Peter chapter 1, don't be surprised the fiery ordeal among you, brothers. Why? Because it's meant to purify your faith, that it be shine more than gold. It reveals sin in our heart, what it is we really want so we can put it to death and no longer be hindered by those things. Instead, enjoy Christ. Second, there's a strengthening effect in suffering. It teaches us to patiently endure. 2 Timothy 2.24, 2 Peter chapter 2. You and I need suffering to be reminded that there is a kingdom coming that's not of this world. If we didn't suffer, all we would want is this. And how shallow this is compared to what Christ offers us. No, uh, suffering has a real earthly and real uh, reminder built into us that it's not about this world, it's not about the pleasures that we have here, but that it's about the glory of God and enjoying that forever. Third, there's an endearing effect, and this is perhaps the most precious one to me. Suffering endears us to our Savior. Why? Second Peter chapter 2, perhaps my favorite and one of the most important chapters in all the scriptures. That we have a Savior that when he suffered didn't, didn't revile in return. That when people rose up and plucked his beard and spit in his face, he didn't call legions of angels down, but instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. Brothers and sisters, do you know who the one who spit in Christ's face is? It's you! It's me! When I suffer, I taste something of what Christ had to endure for me. How long he had to deal with my hard heart. How long he had to deal with my sin and my wickedness. How many times have I slapped my Savior in the face and he hasn't come back at me in anger and wrath. Suffering endears us to him. That we would treasure him more. Finally, suffering has a reminding effect. Mark 5.10, Jesus reminds us that blessed are those who suffer for my namesake, for such is the kingdom of God. There's a promise those who suffer will receive. The last gift here, then, is examples. Examples and encouragement. The very end here, at verse 29, Paul says, but also suffer for his sake, Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Part of being in the kingdom and living with other kingdom citizens is that God has given us other examples who have gone before us, who have suffered well. Jesus is obviously the first and foremost of that. But sometimes we forget that Jesus was a man. And having someone like Paul who suffered is a good reminder to help us to look and see this, is, this can be done. That really, if our heart is set on Christ, we can do these things and do them well. Let me end this way. Brothers and sisters, there's a vast division in the world. It's not based on skin or gender or income. It's based on the heart's affection for Christ. How satisfied are you this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ? Might I suggest where we fail to live out the law, where we fail to come to the sacraments like the Lord's table by faith, when our endurance runs out, that is not a problem of our motivation 
or our schedules or our lack of time or health or any other thing. It's actually indicating us where our satisfaction with Christ ends. Might I encourage you today on this Lord's Day and every day going forward to meditate on your Savior. To let the gospel grow warm, the smoldering embers of your heart, with the intense heat of the love of Christ. How do you do that? Perhaps you've never done that. How do you look outside of yourself to Christ? You say, yes, I believe, but my heart is so cold. Start with this table. Look and see what a feast the Lord has given to us. He has prepared for us a reminder of his sacrifice, of his forgiveness of sins, of his taking it away. He's prepared a table for us to remind us of a feast that's coming in heaven for his bride. He's prepared a table for us here to remind us that he's coming quickly to bring us to himself, that we might be with him forever. Let us pray.